Welcome, everybody. Hope everybody's having a good morning. Yeah, it's morning. Morning on the East Coast, morning on the West Coast. If you're listening uh, somewhere else in the world, hope you're having a good afternoon or evening. Uh, So today, I will talk about how Twitter dropped the hammer directly on my face. (laughs) Uh, We'll talk about that. There's a lot to say about it. Um, I'll lead with that. I got a whole bunch of other stuff, though. Biden uh, gave a speech to the business roundtable, and uh, he had some moments that are Eyebrow-raising, to say the least. For one thing, uh, he actually said a new world order is coming. And I believe that Alex Jones came in his pants as soon as he heard it. So we'll talk about that. Um, I have a Trump interview with Stuart Barney that went off the rails. You guys have maybe seen clips of that because this happened about two days ago. Um, Kid Rock explains why he loves Trump. We got Republicans saying the quiet part loud. Homeboy was like, should interracial marriage really be legal at a federal level? I don't think so. Incredible. Incredible. Bush called a war criminal during a Supreme Court hearing. Uh, we're all over the map today. Oh, and an update on daylight saving time, uh, permanent daylight saving time, and it ain't a good one. Uh, all right, so, so without further ado, let's get started. And we'll do that with my Twitter account being locked. So I have a little bit of personal news here. Uh, This was something. I woke up yesterday, and, you know, one of the first things I do when I wake up is I go right to Twitter because uh, I have to be plugged in all day, constantly looking for uh, news stories and videos and things of that nature that I can present to you lovely people here on this show. Um, So I wake up, go to my Twitter app, and uh, I'm locked out. I was like, what? What the hell is this? So... 
the thing that popped up on screen, and uh, I, I did a post about this on YouTube that you guys can go see. I, I show all the screenshots of everything uh, that I was reading, and I, you know, put uh, a little explanation there. But the gist of what happened is Twitter says, I violated the Twitter rules. Um, and the specifics are, here, I'll read it. Violating our rules against posting media depicting gratuitous gore. Huh? So they say, you may not share excessively graphic media, and the examples they give are severe injury and torture. Exposure to gratuitous gore can be harmful, especially if the content is posted with intent to delight in cruelty or for sadistic pleasure. Um, now, I'll, I'll get to the tweet. <laughs> I know a lot of you guys probably know it by now, but I'll, I'll tell you what I said, which is uh, allegedly falling under this category, stress. Uh, allegedly. So they locked my account. They locked my, <coughs> excuse me, they locked my account and I was unable, I wasn't even, I know they have different kinds of like punishments on Twitter. I wasn't even put in like, you know, like a six hour, seven hour timeout or 12 hour timeout. I wasn't even put in like incognito mode where I'm not allowed to post, but I could still scroll and read stuff. I was just flat out locked out of the account. Now they did say, uh, this was a quote-unquote first offense, I guess. Uh, so what they did say is, look, you can, if you delete the tweet, you just get access back to your Twitter account right away. Now, the reason why, there are a number of reasons why I was hesitant to do that. But one of my concerns is, well, if I delete the tweet, uh, it, they say it's an admission of guilt, the admission of wrongdoing. And I don't know what kind of system Twitter has, but is it a three-strike system? Is it a five-strike system? If I say I did something wrong when I didn't, am I getting closer to that threshold? when I didn't really do anything wrong. Now, of course, that's the other reason why I didn't want to delete any tweets, because uh, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't violate their policy under any reasonable interpretation of their policy. And so as a matter of principle, almost, I wanted to be like, no, uh, take care of this. So what I did is the classic thing you would do, and I appealed. And now here's where we hit uh, another speed bump. This, I mean, there's a real roadblock, actually. Um, I appeal it, and then I start looking up, well, how long does an appeal take? And I got answers all over the map. So the, the best answer that I got was, well, within 48 hours. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't have 48 hours to spare. I got a show to do. And all of my material that I have, I have already stored for the show is on Twitter. Like, I, as I see stuff, I go, I'm going to cover that, I'm going to cover that, I'm going to cover that, and I store it all somewhere on Twitter, and I can't access it unless I get into my account specifically. So I'm like, 48 hours? I don't have 48 hours. Now, but some things said, oh, forget 48 hours. Sometimes they take weeks. Sometimes they take months to get back to you. And some people even said they just never got back to me. What? <laughs> what? Now, I don't know what the truth is. I have no idea. But I'm also going to guess that I'm probably lower priority because 98% of the time when somebody's in this situation, they just delete the tweet. So these sorts of like, hey, if you delete the tweet, you just get your Twitter account back. My guess is that's low on the priority list compared to people who are like permanently suspended or whatever it might be. But then on the flip side, you might say, hey, maybe I'm not a lower priority because I have the verification badge and maybe Twitter has some sort of elitist system where if you have a verification badge, there's like an express lane or something for them to review your stuff. I don't know. But anyway, I appealed the tweet. And I spent yesterday, you know, I, I had a bunch of stuff I had to do. I was taking care of business. And 
I, you know, I gave them a solid eight, nine hours, probably maybe 10, and I didn't get anything back. So uh, I was put in a position where it was like, okay, I either like miss a show, because again, I need access to my specific Twitter account to get all my stuff, which I had scheduled for the show for you guys, I had planned for the show for you guys. It's either I get access. It's either I axe the show for today or I just bite the bullet and delete the tweet. And even though it felt, it felt really shitty, man, because I have this weird principled thing where I don't delete tweets. You guys know I got all my, my very famous decades-old tweets that I, just, I didn't delete them because I feel like people have a right to see the stuff I said and how sometimes I'm a jackass and sometimes I'm a shit poster and whatever. Uh, I feel like it's the right thing to do. To, yeah, I said that shit, and it's documented, and so it's staying up. Right. So I have this weird thing where I don't like to delete tweets, but I was put in a position where I felt like I really have if I want to do the show, which I have to do the show, I really want to do the show, then I have no choice. So I had to delete the tweet. So now, finally, let's get to what the hell was the tweet? Well, the tweet was me saying 2015 was seven years ago, dog, because I saw something on TV that it said, like, you know, the year 2015 and they were showing something. And I stopped and I thought and I was like. I did the math, and I was like, 2015 was seven years ago. 2015 does not feel like seven years ago. It feels like it was last year, two years ago, whatever. It feels very recent, to me at least. You guys might feel different. I felt like, holy cow, that's crazy. 2015 was seven years ago. So I tweeted 2015 was seven years ago, and, and then I posted that GIF, GIF, whatever you guys like to say. I used to say GIF, now I say GIF, of that guy. I don't know what it's from. I don't know what movie it's from. I don't know what show it's from, but it's that guy whose head explodes. Now, it's not a real head explosion. <laughs> like, this isn't actual violence. It's like a doll whose head explodes, and there's, like, you know, fake red blood that goes everywhere. And this is extra perplexing because I, I posted this before and never had an issue. And then other people I saw were posting it too, and they don't have an issue. In fact, I think it's one of Twitter approves gifts. Correct me on that if I'm wrong, guys, but I saw a bunch of people posting it. It's relatively commonly used. And so I'm like, uh, what? So other people can use it. It's fine. I've used it in the past. It's fine. It's not real. It's fake. It's from like a movie or a TV show. By no stretch of the imagination is this excessively gra- graphic media it's not severe injury or torture, and it's certainly not delighting in cruelty and sadistic pleasure. It's a joke tweet. The point was serious of like, damn, 2015 was seven years ago? That's crazy. But the thing is like, oh my God, my mind's exploding at that. And I got locked out of my account for it. By the way, there's an emoji that shows that. Like, I get it. That doesn't look as real as the fake head exploding, but the idea is the exact same. Mind blown, right? So anyway, what a stupid system Twitter has set up, man. What a terrible system. Why on earth should that have been something that got me locked out of my account for through a massive wrench in my day? Because you know what? If I wasn't locked out of my account, I, I was up. I was going to start prepping for today's show in the morning. And I would have done a whole bunch of further prep. And I would have actually taken the stories and converted them into whatever, whatever videos I need and, and whatever notes I need, etc. I wasn't able to do that. And I sat around waiting for 8, 9, 10 hours all because of some nonsense, uh, you know, flagging of a tweet of mine. Now, I've heard theories. Lilith reached out and said, hey, some people who are listeners to the show think maybe it was like 
some sort of bot farm that mass flagged a tweet or something. I, I don't know. I genuinely have no idea. Uh, but what I do know is it's total bullshit because, and this is what I said in my YouTube post on it, this is at the same time. There's a war going on in Ukraine, and people are posting videos of actual violence. I mean, they're all over Twitter. You've seen them. I've seen them. We've, like, covered some of them. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that to say ban their stuff and leave my stuff up. No, I'm happy that they're allowing up the stuff that's happening in the war in Ukraine because it's important. It's real. People have a right to see what's going on, and you get more educated. And even if it's, you know, sometimes hard to watch, it's, it's, you should watch it. They also, there was a Chinese plane crash yesterday where the thing fucking nosedived right out of the sky and it crashed into a mountain and killed over 100 people. That video was on Twitter. The video of the nosediving plane that crashes. So, like, you're seeing the exact moment that people die. I mean, you know, I, we don't even have to talk about how the tower's coming down and the plane's hitting the towers. That's been on the news. That's been little Twitter clips on Twitter. It's, but uh, a fake head exploding crosses a line. So, look, I don't know... Uh, what to do about this. I don't know if they have some sort of three-strike system, five-strike system, whatever. Ultimately, I would like to have my Twitter record cleared, uh, but it seems fruitless at this point, and it seems maybe not even possible because I felt like I had to delete the tweet in order to do the show, and I fucking hated doing that. It felt so shitty. It's like, it, you know, it's like you're kowtowing to a broken system. Now, there are people who will say, look, this is why you got to use this platform or that platform or that platform. Guys, I love you, but you have to understand this problem is bigger than just competition can solve it. It is. It really is. It's, this is something that um, effectively the new public squares with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the very big social media outlets, they're like the new public squares. And you can try to compete with the behemoths, but let's be real, the market share of these other companies trying to compete is infinitesimally small. And, you know, especially for me, I know a lot of Twitter accounts that have good material that I use for the show. Every news outlet under the sun, I follow like every news outlet under the sun, they're all on, on Twitter. I don't know if they're on the competitors. And it's not as simple as like, well, just use this other platform. Because it's like, well, that other platform isn't as good, doesn't have nearly as many people, and I can't get nearly the amount of content. So it's bigger than that. The real solution is to regulate the big social media outlets like their public utilities. And they're thereby expanding First Amendment protections so we don't run into stuff like this. Now, that doesn't mean that you can do targeted harassment and direct threats of violence and, and libel and defamation. Those things are illegal under U.S. law, and they wouldn't be allowed on any sort of free speech protected platform, even under that situation, where you regulate like a public utility. But we should still lean as heavily on the side of free speech as possible. And then I'll also say this, because I found this astonishing, but there were some people who were replying to what I was going through here. And it was, I mean, it's like the most uneducated and ignorant response you can imagine. People saying like, well, what goes around comes around. This is the system that you created. This is the system that you built. This is what you've advocated for. Excuse me? <laughs> I'm Kyle Kalinske. I'm the secular talk dude. I'm the dude who oftentimes takes heat from my own audience because I'm so much of a free speech bro and a free speech absolute. I've defended the most odious of odious figures. But you have people, I'm, I assume, who are conservative, who look at me, they go, I know he's a lefty, and now he's complaining about censorship. Well, where were you before? I was right here, bitch. I was right here. And so it's just amazing to me because 
what these people are doing is that rank partisan hackery. They just assume it's, it's just tribalism. They assume, oh, he's a lefty, therefore he had to be, he had to argue for censorship. And everybody knows I've been the most consistent on this of anybody on the right or the left. And so it's just amazing to me that people can, it's like you get typecast as one thing or another thing in their mind. And then like, they just project onto you everything they think you believe, you know, it's like, well, I've seen this before. This is, this person's a lefty and lefties believe X, Y, and Z. And it's like, Hey, dipshit, how about you actually listen to the show and then you understand what my actual positions are and then you react to that? But no, of course, it's too easy to just be like, ah, ha, we've got one, boys. And it's like, you're the thing that you claim to despise. You claim the lefties are just tribalists and, and partisan hacks. But then you're doing the partisan hackery. You're doing the tribalism. Lefty got banned. Yes, what goes around comes around. You had it coming. You had it coming. Why'd you advocate for censorship that you definitely didn't advocate for at all, ever? Unbelievable, man. Just, God damn it. So, so ignorant. Anyway, um, so, yeah, Twitter, get your fucking shit together, man. It's amazing because if something like this gets flagged and locks an account, Twitter is just, like, what are they other than an overbearing parent with a censorship trigger finger? That, this is overbearing parent shit. I don't know, little Timmy. That gift sure has a lot of fake blood in it. You're punished. Go to your room. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm not, I'm not having a good go of it recently, am I, guys? We had um, YouTube banned my coverage of uh, Trump talking to the Nelk boys. Remember that? They, he had a podcast that was pulled um, because he advocated, you know, the rigged election theory in there. And I covered that podcast, but I didn't cover the rigged election part. But number one, the Nelk boys copy, copyright strike me. Like they said, we're going to jack the revenue for this. That's what they did. And then after it had been up for two, three days or whatever, Twitter just blocked the entire video because my guess is they said anything from that podcast now gets pulled. It doesn't even have to be the part where Trump talks about the rigged election. So that was censored by YouTube. Um, you have my, one of my Joe Rogan podcasts was pulled down from Spotify because in that episode, Joe was quoting something Kanye West said, and he said, N-I-G-G-A. He said the N-word with the A at the end. They banned the entire podcast as a result of that. And now Twitter locks me out. I mean, look, again, if you guys don't see the slippery slope here, if you guys don't see the problem, I don't know what to tell you. Cause, I mean, and again, I think this is just the beginning. I really do. I, I think it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And it sucks. And I don't see any solutions other than the main thing I'm advocating for, which is um, regulate these social media companies like their public utilities and expand First Amendment protections. But unfortunately, we're getting the, uh, the libertarian solution, which is a non-solution, which is like, Let's just have these things compete and do really shitty in the competition and get nowhere near it. There you have it. Your boy's getting slapped around by, by social media. So anyway, if you like the show, subscribe to the channel, like the videos, leave a comment. That helps out in the algorithm. And um, I mean, I say that, but then on the other hand, it's like, if they, if they really drop the hammer on me, all that stuff will be not anyway, because we'll be kicked off various platforms. But while we're here, <laughs> while we're here, please do me a favor and 
uh, like the video, subscribe to the channel, and uh, follow me on Twitter for as long as I will be around on Twitter till they drop the axe on me because I make a fart joke or something. And yeah, anyway, there, there we are. All right, next. Joe Biden gave a speech at the Business Roundtable, and um, he has this moment here that, oh, my goodness, I'm sure Alex Jones came in his pants. I'm sure the, the hardcore conspiracy guys, the ones that believe in, like, every conspiracy, oh, they're having a field day with this one. So he's talking about the war in Ukraine. He's talking about, you know, the way the global system currently works with the U.S. as the world's sole superpower. And he says something very interesting about a new world order. You know, we are at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy. Not just the world economy in the world. It occurs every three or four generations. As one of as the uh, one of the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 60, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946, and uh, since then we established a liberal world order and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people died, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. So anyway. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. New world order. He said it. He said the words. He said the words. Now, the, one of the conspiracy theories, probably going back to the Obama years, the big one everybody talked about was Agenda 21. That was the one that Glenn Beck was all over and many others. Uh, the new one people are talking about is the Great Reset. Um, but the new world order is the one that stuck around the longest, right up there with like the Illuminati the idea that, you know, and the thing about a lot of these conspiracy theories is that they have a grain of truth in them, so they seem plausible, and then people go down the rabbit hole and start believing every conspiracy theory. Like, um, the Illuminati one is like, well, you have this group, and this group are full of elites, and these elites have phenomenal wealth and power, and they kind of secretly run everything. And, I mean, the grain of truth is elites run everything, but where they're wrong is it's not really hidden. It's out in the open. It's very obvious. You know what I mean? Like, when you look at the donor class of politics, you look at billionaires, you look at corporations, it's all right in front of us. They're all just buying politicians with campaign contributions. And then you have the revolving door and they're giving politicians huge paydays when they serve them when they're in office. So the system is just rigged in favor of the powerful and the wealthy. That's obvious, right? So the conspiracy is out there in the open. Uh, But what is he actually saying here when he brings up the new world order? Like, what does he mean here when he says the new world order? Well, It is a little bit hard to tell, but my interpretation is with what's happening right now with Russia and Ukraine, um, it's very clear that the days of the U.S. as the world's sole superpower are waning, to put it kindly. Um, We're on the decline as the world's sole superpower. And what you see here is there are now moves being made where China is ascendant. And as soon as all of the crippling sanctions from the West cracked down on Russia, Russia ran into the loving arms of China. So, for example, you have all the swift banking sanctions where 
like Russia was effectively cut off from the global economy. They're even going after the oil and gas, which was thought as impossible because Europe's so reliant on Russian oil and gas. But China stepped in and said, why don't you use our banking system? And Russia said, thank you very much. And so if it wasn't, if Russia didn't have China to fall back on, they wouldn't even really be able to do what they're doing right now because, you know, they're uh, relatively poor and they don't have the resources and the capability to do a, you know, permanent long-term occupation of Ukraine. And so China is who they're falling back on. Now, at the same time, China is doing the Belt Road Initiative, and they're basically recruiting various different countries for their upgraded version of imperialism, which is, we're going to give you some material benefit and build that infrastructure, uh, but also now you're going to let us extract your natural resources. So it's like the evolution of imperialism. The way the U.S. did imperialism was, or is, a little bit more primitive. The idea is we prop up puppet governments um, in various countries where the, the people who run the country are from that country. So it's like puppet dictators that represent U.S. corporate interests, but they're from that country. So that was our version of imperialism. They have upgraded it even more. Well, what if we actually give you some material benefit through infrastructure building, et cetera, but not, then we get to you know, use your natural resources? So that's, again, it's, it's a slightly more appealing version of imperialism to a lot of people in these countries who are willingly making these deals with China. And then, of course, before us, there was an even more primitive version of imperialism, like, for example, what the British did in India, where they go in there and they're like, you're ours and we're going to control you. And the further back in time you go, obviously, the more primitive it gets, the more blatant in your face and bloodthirsty the imperialism is. Uh, imperialism is still bloodthirsty. It's just um, they found ways to mask it and make it more palatable and give plausible deniability to the fact that it actually is imperialism. But anyway, I think the argument is the, the post-Cold War international order has clearly crumbled. And he's, he's acknowledging that. And, but then he says, there's going to be a new world order and things are shifting, but we have to lead the free world. So, I, I mean, I guess my interpretation of that is he views that as the U.S. and the U.K., France and Germany. So the U.S. and Europe and like Australia and Japan and maybe some others, like we need to lead the quote unquote free country, South Korea, and um, effectively serve as a bulwark against the rise of China and their version of imperialism and their version of being a superpower. So in other words, it's no longer um, a unipolar world. And now it's a multipolar world. And you have two powerful countries with their own spheres of influence. And then, but the, the part that, you know, definitely is going to feed the people, the Alex Jones types is the, he brings up that, what do you say, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946. I'm guessing he's talking about in all the world, the wars in that time. And he's was saying effectively we have, we've created stability under the U.S. in the time after that. I don't think that's a good point at all. I, in fact, I think that's a terrible point because it just whitewashes all of the blood that's on our hands through different means. So, you know, we, we do dirty wars all over the place. I mean, look at what we did to South America during the Cold War. How many vicious dictators did we prop up under the name of, under the guise of freedom and liberty and free market capitalism? You know, uh, we, as of today, we support 73% of the world's dictatorships with weapons and money. And then, of course, they, have, they brutally crack down on their own populations. When you look at how we armed the Contras, for example, they did torture, they, they raped women, they, uh, you know, targeted healthcare facilities, et cetera. So it, it's a little bit, you know, let's put 
let, let's look back at our time as the global superpower through rose-colored glasses and try to act like there's no blood post-World War II, whereas before World War II, there was uh, a lot of blood. But, you know, go talk to people in Vietnam and Cambodia. And what do we kill? A million landless peasants in those countries in, in you know, acts of terror, relentless terror. So the idea of, well, we had a, the, the current world order was just good. It's like that really is whitewashing our own history. And the, I love how it brings up it's a liberal world order. It's not a liberal world. It, it's liberal in terms of how we present it and the language we use. We always embrace the, the language of, you know, human rights, democracy, freedom, justice, um, law and order. Like we use these flowery terms. But then in terms of how it actually functions, no, we're massive hypocrites. You don't need to look any further than the Iraq war to figure out how unserious our commitment is to those ideals. So the idea that we're a liberal world order, I find hilarious. The difference is um, there is more of like a raw honesty with the barbarism when it's Russia and even to a lesser degree, China, you know, like with Russia, when they're like, hey, you're killing civilians in Ukraine. We covered this segment, these Russian state officials being like, uh, yeah, but you did it in Afghanistan. And then the follow-up question is like, does that make it okay when you do it? And the answer was, yes, it does. So they're, they, don't, they didn't smooth the rough edges off. Like they're not lying, right? But they're also just being openly barbaric, which is also horrendous and terrible. But... I think Biden's pointing at the reality that now we're entering a new phase. We're entering a quote-unquote new world order. And um, the, the current order is collapsing or has collapsed. And so I think that's what he's referencing. I think that's what he's talking about. I don't think this is an acknowledgement from Joe Biden of like a cabal in a, smoky, in a smoke-filled back room that's like, you know, whatever, 20 people who are like, we control everything and we will continue. Let me twist my evil mustache. Yes. Um, I don't think he's admitting to here. But having said that, I'm sure some people are having a field day with this. And understandably so, given um, how simple it is for this language to be interpreted as they would interpret it. You know, like has Alex Jones done something on this yet? I know he's only on like one platform now and he's hidden on the internet. I think it's like band.video or something. But you guys tell me, has Alex Jones done something on this yet? I'm sure he's done something on this. I'm sure he's, he's diving into it. But whatever his interpretation is, I'm sure he's going to go way above and beyond what the actual reality of what the description is. But nonetheless, I will grant you, using that terminology, probably not the best idea. And also using that terminology while talking about all these people died from 1900 to 1946. It's like you bring massive death count plus using the phrase New World Order. There are going to be some people who are like, oh, fuck. Agenda 21 is real. The Great Reset is real. New World Order is real. Uh, the Agenda 21 thing was they're all going to, they're going to shove us into Hobbit homes. They're going to ban cars. Like all these. And, you know, you know what, what's going to happen is, at least in the West, the things that are most beneficial – to the billionaires and the corporations and the donor class, the capitalists, the elites, those are the things that are going to be done. But it's not going to be some of the things you hear like, they're going to eat babies' faces. It's not that. But it's bad enough as it is. You don't need to make up an extra layer of conspiracy on top of the open conspiracy, which is bad enough, which is bad enough. But 
it's true. Now we're, now we're coming into a world where it ain't just the U.S. or the world's sole superpower, and recent events verify this. All right, next. Donald Trump went on uh, Stuart Barney's show, I think on Fox Business or Fox News. I think it's Fox Business. Um, and he had so many moments that uh, went viral. So the first one that I want to show you here, uh, he's asked very specifically, and actually credit to Stuart Barney on this. I never thought I'd say those words in my life because he's generally a hideous host. He's terrible. But uh, he's asked in a very straightforward way, what would you do differently from Joe Biden with this Russian war on Ukraine. What would you do differently? Give me specifics. Give me specifics. He actually presses him a number of times on it. He doesn't answer. He doesn't answer. He doesn't answer because he doesn't have an answer. But then finally, at the end, he says something that he would do differently. And holy cow, is it bad? To watch. There's this discussion about whether we should send jets, MiG jets, to help the Ukrainian right. Air Force. Would you send in that kind of help? Well, maybe even more. To be honest with you, and I'm, like, I'm the like one what, that would have stayed out. Like I'm the one that would have stayed out. Let, let me just explain that Putin is saying things like, "Don't you dare send anything in." In the meantime, he's killing thousands and thousands of people. So he's acting like we're an aggressor. We send in some old 44-year-old plane that probably gets shot out of the sky pretty quickly, and he's acting like we were terrible people if we do that. But he's killing tens of thousands of people, far more than they're reporting. You don't knock down those buildings and blow up those buildings and they say two people were injured slightly. And thousands of people are being killed. And when he says, don't you dare do that, and we all say, oh, he said don't do it, we don't want to start. The fact is that what he's doing is a human tragedy. There's not been anything like this in a sense maybe ever, but certainly since World War II when you look at it. But there's never been anything like this. So what do you do now? You, 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 you said you'd maybe do more than just send in the mid-jets, all right? What well, more? what I would do is I would do, uh, we would do, we have tremendous military capability. And what we can do without planes, to be honest with you, without 44-year-old jets, what we can do is enormous. And we should be doing it. And we should be helping them to survive. And they're doing an amazing job. But, you know, I was the one that sent in the javelins. I mean, everyone refuses to acknowledge that, and I took a lot of heat. And uh, I sent it in very openly and glowingly, and they said uh, Obama sent blankets and Trump sent javelins. Well, nobody knew how well those javelins would do and how well they But those javelins that knocked out all the tanks, those were sent by me, and we sent them in large numbers, too. I didn't even realize at the time when I sent them, I said, man, you know, that's a lot of stuff we're sending, but let's do it. Let them have a chance. I had, who would have thought that they would have been so powerful the way they protected that country? But they need other kinds of help. We didn't talk. But I listened to him constantly using the N-word. That's the N-word. And he's constantly using it, the nuclear word. And we never talk. We say, oh, he's a nuclear power. But we're a greater nuclear power. We have the greatest submarines in the world, most powerful machines ever built, most powerful, and they built, got built under me. 
most powerful machine ever built, and nobody knows where they are. And you should say, look, you, if you mention that word one more time, we're going to send them over, and we'll be coasting back and forth up and down your coast. Yeah, that is a terrible idea. That's a horrendous idea. He's saying, send our nuclear submarines to Russia. That's what he's saying. Um, so this is actually, as we talk about Trump, this was actually my concern all along. If he was still in office right now, my concern is not like a lot of the resistance liberals who are like, oh, he's Vladimir Putin's puppet, so he's going to let him do whatever he wants to do and take Ukraine and like support it, and he's going to pull out of NATO. He, this is like you know the silly line, which is Russiagate brainworms. The thing that concerned me was actually the exact opposite, which is because you have this media environment saying that Trump is Putin's butt buddy and he's his puppet and, you know, uh, Putin owns Trump and all that stuff, that Trump will overreact in the other direction to try to prove to people, see, I'm not his puppet. I'm actually being tougher than anybody has ever been, ever. And this is what he's talking about here. Now, he did point out, and it's true. Trump did arm Ukraine, and unfortunately, a lot of those weapons went to the Azov Battalion, went to neo-Nazis on the ground, and that's why we were against that. I was against that policy, and I was screaming about it at the top of my lungs. Now, of course, he had that phone call with Zelensky where he was basically like, look, I'm going to withhold some of this aid unless and until you, like, investigate Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and give me some dirt on them. So he was trying to take, like, mix in personal politics with actual international politics, which is totally unacceptable, and you can't do that. But having said that, he did arm them. Even before that phone call, he had armed them a a lot. And that was a policy Obama didn't do because Obama didn't want to escalate with Russia. Trump was escalating with Russia like nobody's business. There were drills going on uh, on Russia's border under Donald Trump. He also axed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and wouldn't allow it, saying, no, Russia and Germany can't have a pipeline deal because we want Germany to take our oil and gas. And so in many ways, he was very hawkish on that question. And what we're seeing here is if he was in office, especially if the argument all these arguments of the media saying, like, do a no-fly zone, be more aggressive, be more hawkish, do this, do that. Trump would not be able to resist that pressure. And in fact, he says it, I'd go above and beyond. I'd be sending a nuclear submarine to Russia right now. That's what scares me. And by the way, further evidence for this being the real problem with Trump is, remember what happened with North Korea. Remember what happened with North Korea, how he was, like, very openly threatened nuclear war on Twitter against North Korea. So now eventually there were actually talks between us and North Korea, which is much better than escalating tensions. But when there was the escalating tensions, God damn it, that was terrifying. And I, that's, I wouldn't want him as president right now because he's more erratic. He's more reflexive and impulsive. And my guess is he would try to do anything and everything to try to prove to everybody, I'm not Putin's puppet. I'm not Putin's puppet. Send the nuclear submarine. And do you really want that kind of a standoff where if now there's a 3% chance of nuclear war that we're talking about, Donald Trump makes it like a 20% chance or a 17% chance or whatever it might be? That was always my fear with him. That was always my fear is that he is too hawkish and he is too impulsive. And he would, unfortunately, get us closer to that brink. So it's the opposite of what everybody else is saying. Oh, he's going to pull out of NATO and he's going to be too much of a bitch. And No, that's not the problem. And this is why the way in which you criticize Trump is so important. It's so important to be accurate in your criticism because the stakes are as high as anybody can imagine. It's nuclear war. He's saying, I would send nuclear submarines to Russia. Now, how does Vladimir Putin react to that? 
what would he do in reaction to that? You don't even want to think about it. You don't even want to think about it. So now, of course, the other part of this is to go to the beginning. Um, Trump's asked, like, what would you do differently than what Biden's doing? And then, he, you know, they're talking about maybe sending the MiGs. And Trump says, I would send more. And Varney's like, okay, what would you send? And Trump's answer is, he says, uh, we, have, we have a tremendous military, tremendous, tremendous military capability, enormous. Okay, tremendous, enormous, gargantuan, whatever word you want to throw in there, what more would you do? Uh, I, I, was, I sent in the javelins very openly and glowingly. What? <laughs> yeah, I didn't just send them in. I sent them in openly and glowingly. Uh, and then, of course, we get the Putin is constantly using the N-word. He says the N-word all the time. He loves saying the N-word. And I mean nuclear when I say that. The argument from Trump is effectively Putin threatens nuclear war, so we should too. How about no? So he couldn't really differentiate himself from Biden because most of the stuff Biden is doing is, I think, what almost any U.S. president would do. But he's saying the ways in which I would go above and beyond are objectively worse. Threaten nuclear war and send our nuclear submarines to Russia right now. That is not okay. That is not okay. Biden, what Biden, how Biden is handling it is better, although I still have criticisms of Biden. Of course, the collective punishment angle is inexcusable to me. You guys know my stance on this. I would do every sanction imaginable against Putin, against the oligarchs, against the military. But the second you do any sort of collective punishment sanctions, which try to implode the entire Russian economy and hurt regular Russians, I'm out. I don't want to have anything to do with ruining somebody's life who had nothing to do with what happened here. And if anything, you have so many people, thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people, protesting the war in the streets in an authoritarian country and getting arrested. Those are heroes. And now what you're doing is enacting policy that says to them, uh, I don't want you to be able to take money out of the bank. I, want, I don't want you to know where your next meal is coming from. You know, I want to destroy your savings, et cetera, et cetera. That I'm not okay with. But what Biden is doing is basically every sanction imaginable while trying to be clear in his rhetoric, we don't want war with Russia. We're not going to go to war with Russia. We're ruling out a no-fly zone. We're ruling out a hot war, yada, yada. So, and this is the guy who's probably the favorite to be the next president of the U.S., It's either Biden or Trump who's the favorite to be the next president of the U.S. Because Trump right now is uh, basically tied in the polls with Biden. And everybody else is nowhere to be seen. So, not good, man. Not good. Imagine this guy gets back in there. I think uh, he's the last. You want a steady hand during a crisis. And he is the exact opposite of a steady hand. Okay, next. This is, the, um, this is from the same interview, but it's good. It is, it is worth it. Stuart Varney um, grilled Trump here on the stolen election lies. You could tell he's frustrated. You could tell he's exasperated. You could tell he's just like, move on, dog, move on, move on, move on. You're only hurting yourself. Let's watch him, and I'll react. Second year in a row that that's happened. Well, they don't like the truth. 
Well, what can you do? Well, I talked about a rigged election, which it was 100% rigged. I mean, look at what happened in Wisconsin. Look at what's happening in Georgia. All the things they're finding. Trust the vote. Look at all the hundreds of thousands of us. So they don't like it, and uh, they ban it. And, of course, Fox is afraid to put it on. But well, wait a second. Maybe I guess. Wait a second. If we go into 2022, the elections, and 2024, and you're still looking back to the election of 2020, and saying that you really won. I don't think that's very good for you or the Republican Party. You want to comment yeah. on that? Well, I, yeah, I, I actually think it is good for me, and I think if we don't uh, put out all of the crooked things, and we know what they are, that you won't win in 22 and you won't win in 24, if we don't get to it. So I think it's the opposite, actually, and I talk nothing about, nobody you, talks more about the future you, you than I do, but 2022, you also have to look you, you think that 2022 and 2024 are all about the 2020 election. No, no, no. I think for us to win the election, we have to know how they cheated, because otherwise they'll cheat again. And we do know how they cheated. And Republicans and Democrats should, but they won't. Republicans have to do something about it, or they're going to be very disappointed. And nobody talks more about the future than I do. But you have to learn from history also, and you can't let it happen again. So that's so important. Trump is too dense to understand that Stuart Barney is literally trying to help him. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. So let's go through that. Um, now, I will say the whole, like, his CPAC speech being banned, I'm totally against that. I mean, you can't just – this – so the rigged election conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy theory. It's totally false. I'll get to that in a second and give you more specifics on it. You guys have heard me give the specifics before. But um, – you still shouldn't ban it. If you're going to ban that, okay, well, then I get, the 9-11 conspiracies have to go, probably, the Sandy Hook one obviously gets you booted. Does, but then what about the JFK conspiracy, which a lot of intelligent people uh, who have looked at the evidence have said it wasn't just a lone gunman, it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald. There's a lot of weird stuff going on there. And then there's just, you know, a slippery slope of all these different, what are you going to do? Just only the official correct position is allowed. It's like correct, by the way, I put that in quotes. It just, you can't do it. You can't have a ministry of truth. You can't, because who's going to fact check the fact checkers? People have their own biases. You got to just let it be, man. You got to just let it be. And they're not doing that. So I disagree on that front. Now, having said that, yes, the rigged election stuff is easily uh, disproven. Like, it's, it wasn't even difficult. They, guys, they tried in real time. It's not like now, after the fact, they're like, hey, I think it's rigged, and maybe we should have done something to try to prove that. They tried to prove it over and over. There were 60-plus court cases, and Trump lost almost every single one of them. And, by the way, they lost. it's not like, oh, these are all Democrat judges. Some of the judges were Republican-appointed judges by George W. Bush. Some of them were Trump-appointed judges, and they were like, you don't have a case here, dog. You lost. www.getoverit.net. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then, of course, the Arizona audit is the best example of this. The Trump people were convinced if you audit the vote in Arizona, Trump is going to win. And then what happened? Not only did Trump not win, Biden won by more votes than he won by on election day. And everybody who thinks, because one of the main reasons why, one of the main reasons why people think, hey, maybe this is uh, unfair and it's rigged, is because the way the voting happened on election day, you had Donald Trump was up for a very long time. He was up for a very long time. So a lot of people thought, oh, he's definitely going to win. He looks, he looks like he has a giant lead right now at the time where most people went to sleep on Election Day. 
Now, here's the problem with that. You had the votes that were counted on election day first in most of the states were from the election day. It's been proven historically Republicans like to vote in person more on election day. So those votes are going to be more biased in favor of the Republicans, the ones that are from election day and then counted immediately. So it's going to be more biased. It was called the red mirage was the scenario. And then as soon as you count all of the mail-in ballots, the mail-in ballots historically lean very democratic. And so if they counted the on the day first, and then they count the mail-in ones after. Well, what happens is it looks like the Republicans are leading by a lot, and then the Democrats charge back because most of the mail-ins are for Democrats. Now, you might say, well, after the fact now, Kyle, you're giving this explanation, and that's not, you know, that seems like a rationalization for what happened because Trump really was the one who won. Wrong. Go back and watch. I was on... Joe Rogan's podcast, we did an election day special. It was myself, Joe Rogan, and Tim Dillon. Before any of the votes were counted, I said in no uncertain terms, here's how it's likely to go down. You will have the Republicans look like they're up by a lot from the voting on election day. And then as soon as they count the mail-ins, the Democrats will surge ahead. That's exactly what happened. I said it beforehand. And guys, I'm not some sort of super genius here. I just read all the relevant material on the election. So it, like, this is all in front, of, it's all obvious. If you go back and you're willing to be open-minded and you're willing to evaluate things fairly, you're going to come to that conclusion. So it's not true. You lost the election. Get over it. You lost, you lost, you lost. And Barney's pressing him, but again, the only reason he's pressing him is for this very simple reason. He knows it's not good for Trump and it's not good for Republicans and it makes it less likely they win the more he talks about it. And I love how Trump, when like really put in a corner, he's like, Stuart, nobody talks more about the future than I do. As every speech he gives, he can't help but bring up rigged election, rigged election, rigged election, talking about the past. Nobody talks more about the future than I do, Stuart. Nobody does. Nobody does. Stuart Varney knows it's not good for you. It's not good for Republicans. We covered a poll on this exact issue. You know what percentage of Republicans want Republican politicians and candidates to talk about the 2020 election? 15%. 15. If it's 15% among Republicans, what the hell do you think it is among Democrats? Probably zero. What do you think it is among independents? Probably 7%. So nobody wants to talk about this. People care about the economy and jobs and health care and, you know, now the potential for nuclear war. This is what people care about, and he can't help himself. So look, Trump's Achilles heel is that he can easily self-destruct by not being able to get out of his own head. People don't, I mean, maybe some of you remember this, but going all the way back to 2016, Trump, the reason why Trump was really able to break through and destroy the Republicans in the primary and then eventually win the election is because he had much more of the the pseudo-populism, and finger on the pulse enough to bullshit to people to tell them what they wanted to hear. So the 2016 Trump candidacy was the stronger of all of them. Then in 2020, he sort of lost sight of that, and it became more ego-driven. He sounded more like a Fox News grandpa. He had lost the pseudo-populism after governing for four years like a standard establishment Republican. And then now he's downgraded even again. I even think the 2020 version of campaign uh, of Trump when he was campaigning, was better than this current version. 
And so even though he's leading in every poll in the Republican primary and he's tied with Biden, he could self-destruct by only, you know, talking about this nonstop, focusing on this nonstop, because no, you're not going to move people on it, dog. You've been trying relentlessly. And only 15% of even Republicans say, yeah, talk about that. So I think Stuart Barney really is just trying to help him when he's like, dog, shut the fuck up. Move on. Get over it. Let's talk about, like, policy. So anyway, in a weird way, I guess, you know, you should be rooting for Trump to keep talking about this because that is the thing that's guaranteed to hurt him the most. Okay, next. Kid Rock sat down for an interview with Tucker Carlson, and uh, I found this part very interesting. He's talking about basically why he loves Donald Trump. Let's take a look, and then I'll react. Chair Palin asked him to uh, you know, friendly with her, and early right when he got elected, he invited her to dinner to bring some interesting people. So she said she called me and, and Ted, uh, Ted Nugent, and was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and up there, we ended up becoming buddies, and spent a lot of time on the golf course now, and really weird to get phone calls from him and stuff. It's, it's kind of mind-blowing. What's he like to play golf with? Him describing why he loves Trump. Because notice, 
there was nothing there. There was nothing there about like specific policies that Kid Rock cares deeply about, that Trump cares deeply about and delivered on. You know, like if you go back and ask, ask any Bernie supporter from 2016 or 2020, why do you support Bernie Sanders? You will get snap answers that are like Medicare for all. You know, he, he wants to give everybody health care. He wants to catch up to the rest of the developed world. It's an abomination that we have a private for-profit health care system. People go bankrupt trying to pay their medical bills. People can't afford their prescription drugs. Bernie wants to fix that. He's more committed than anybody. He's always been consistent on it. That's why I support Bernie Sanders. You know, you will get, you will, guaranteed, you will get policy answers from a Bernie supporter as, hey, why do you support Bernie? So in other words, it's ideological, and it's based on real-world impact to improve people's lives. I mean, that was a pretty long answer there from Kid Rock. You didn't get anything specific about policy. So, you know, as he talks, it, it dawns on you, why, well, why does he like him? Well, one thing is the interpersonal relationship that Trump, he finds him very charming uh, in an interpersonal sense. And by the way, I, I sincerely believe that every president uh, has that capability where when you're in the room with them and you talk to them, they are really great at communicating and making you feel special. And, and you know, I, Obama had it. I think Biden has it. Uh, Trump has it. Bill Clinton obviously had it. Maybe the only exception here is George H.W. Bush, but even him, I'm sure he found a way to be, you know, like monotone and charming, you know. So that's one thing almost every president has. Um, so it's the interpersonal stuff that he likes. And then it's, a, it's like the, the truthiness of Trump, the truthiness without the truth. Because Trump, obviously, Trump is not all that well-versed on policy, and he's wrong about so many things, and he's a... Oftentimes when Trump talks, it sounds like the kid who's doing the book report who didn't read the book, and he's just bullshitting his way through, but it comes across as authentic. And people, I think, again, I think we're in that era. Like, people don't like the way, the standard politician way of talking, where you're too scripted and too planned out, um, and you're plotting every word to be just right. People like more of the shoot from the cuff. And like he said, hey, as long as it comes from here, even if you're wrong, I'd rather take that over somebody who it's not coming from here and maybe it's right. And I think we're in the era of that right now. So that's another reason why he likes them. So the reasons for liking him, I mean, call it what it is, they're shitty reasons. They're just bad reasons. Um, and on Trump's end, it's very clear to me, and it always has been, even though he postures as like, you know, I'm against Hollywood, uh, he's the ultimate star fucker. He really is. Like, he loves, and a lot of Republican voters are like this too. They go after the left, stay in your lane if you're an actor. Don't talk about politics. And then it's like, we love Ronald Reagan, who was an actor. <laughs> we love Donald Trump, who was a celebrity beforehand. <laughs> like, uh, well, you know, there's massive hypocrisy and contradiction there. Um, and it should be slightly concerning to everybody that Trump was uh, asking policy advice of Kid Rock. He was asking policy advice. He was asking policy advice. He's like, we're looking at maps and shit. And Kid Rock was like, am I even supposed to be in here, like, looking at this? And then he's asked, what should we do about North Korea? Now, look, it's possible Trump was joking. And, you know, if he was joking, it's like, whatever, who cares, non-issue. But if you're actually looking for, for policy advice from Kid Rock, uh, that is not a good sign. But, yeah, Trump is the ultimate star fucker. One of my more controversial claims about Trump that I made – you know, back during the 2016 election, is that I think in Trump's heart of hearts, he, he viciously goes after Hillary Clinton. He's actually jealous of Hillary Clinton, though, because who is Hillary Clinton? 
Hillary Clinton is beloved by the establishment and the elites. Like, and honestly, there's like the only people who like her. <laughs> Them and like a handful of hardcore resistance liberals, Democratic partisan hacks. So like Hillary Clinton is beloved by the elites, beloved by the establishment. So many Hollywood stars and musicians and actors came out of the woodwork to support her and did rallies with her, et cetera. And I think Trump ultimately, he always wanted that approval from the 1%, from the higher-ups. And now Trump delivered, by the way, for the 1% in terms of massive tax cuts and deregulation and so on and so forth, but they never really accepted him on a personal level because he's so, you know, they view him as sort of crass and unsophisticated. But Trump always wanted to be part of that club, struggled to be part of that club. But when he finds the stars who do like him and do support him, man, he, he loses it. And he's the ultimate star fucker. He, I'm sure he loves being surrounded by Ted Nugent and Kid Rock and whatever other John Voigt, whatever other right-wing celebrities there are that are like fawning over him. But yeah, ultimately, the reasons why he loves Trump, almost admittedly, have nothing to do with policy, the direction of the country, improving people's lives. It has to do with like, man, this guy's just like us and he shoots from the hip and he's authentic. And he's, there's the truthiness feeling to when he talks. And so I'm all in for it. And it just, it goes to show you, it's so easy for people to be taken in by a demagogue. So easy for people to be taken in by a sophist. Somebody who just has that X factor and that aura in the way that they communicate. It's just too easy for human beings to just malfunction and follow the leader in that sense. And I think this is just such a great example of that. So there you go. Kid Rock talking about why he loves Donald Trump. And I'm sure you're not surprised to learn. It is not for reasons that really make sense. All right, next. There's a Republican senator by the name of Mike Braun, and he was asked a question by some of the local papers. Um, Hey, man, what do you think about this abortion case that the Supreme Court is hearing? You know, there's Roe versus Wade is definitely on the ropes. And you have a lot of states that are really going hard with this anti-abortion legislation, trying to ban it sooner and sooner. Um, you know, some states, it is kind of effectively banned already with these what's called trap laws, targeted restriction of abortion procedure. That's what it stands for. And what they do is, for those of you who don't know, I'll just catch everybody up on this. What they do is they'll have um, these really onerous regulations on abortion providers specifically. So they'll say, they'll write these laws. The ceiling needs to be 15 feet high and you need the vents to be this big and all these things. And then the abortion providers look around and they're like, well, our ceilings aren't that high and our vents aren't that big. And it seems like you just crafted this legislation and this regulation just to regulate us out of existence. So we have to shut down immediately because we can't meet your onerous regulation. That's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what happens, which is why you have so many states that have like one abortion clinic and, you know, again, legislation banning it sooner and sooner. I mean, there's legislation on the books and legislation that has passed in various states that is literally just um, unconstitutional under Roe versus Wade. So like we have the precedent, the precedent has been set and they're just ignoring the precedent. They're just like, we don't care that it's, you're, you're saying we can't do this within the state. We're going to do it anyway. So Mike Braun's asked about this new case in front of the Supreme Court involving abortion. And his answer is basically, look, you got to lead up to the states. I'm a state's rights guy. So, you know, New York wants to ban abortion, or or, excuse me, New York wants to allow abortion, fine. California does, fine. But 
Mississippi doesn't want to. You can't force them to do it. Leave it up to the states, leave it up to the states, leave it up to the states. Now, he tries to hold by that principle when asked a phenomenal follow-up question by journalists here. And he shoves his foot directly in his mouth. Watch. So you would be okay with the Supreme Court leaving the question of interracial marriage to the states? Yes, I think that that's something that uh, if you're not wanting the Supreme Court to weigh in on issues like that, uh, you're not going to be able to have your cake and eat it, too. I think that's hypocritical. About Griswold versus Connecticut. Yeah, you can list a whole host of issues when it comes down to whatever they are. Uh, I'm going to say that they're not going to all make you happy uh, within a given state, but that we're better off having states manifest their points of view rather than homogenizing it across the country as Roe versus Wade did. That's amazing. He's saying interracial marriage shouldn't be the law of the land federally, nationally. There shouldn't be a protection for interracial marriage for the entire country. That's what he's saying. Leave it up to the states. Let the states decide. Mississippi wants to ban it, let them ban it. This is the argument he's making. This is the argument he's making. Forgive me for being naive for thinking that by the year 2022, people would file this one under the duh category. Like, of course, it should be protected federally. No. He says no, because states' rights. And by the way, this is actually a great, it's a great history lesson, too. Because what a lot of people don't realize, if you have just a cursory understanding of politics, is that a lot of the racial politics in this country they were masked under the guise of, this isn't about race, it's just about states' rights. So when this argument was trotted out previously, it was during segregation, where the argument coming from southern states that wanted to maintain segregation, the argument was not, we love segregation, we are pro-segregation, because we are racist and want black people to be second-class citizens. That's not the argument they made. They dressed it up. They put a thin veneer of respectability over it and said, this has nothing to do with race. This has to do about states' rights. So we want to have our own sovereignty in our respective states. And the federal, big, bad, mean federal government is trying to force other values on us when we believe in the freedom within our own state to make our own decisions. Now, what they meant is we want to have the freedom to take away the freedom of black people. We want to have the freedom to restrict liberty within our state. That's the reality of what they were asking for. But they didn't admit that. And it's a, good, it's a good crash course in the way a lot of odious ideas are implemented. It's always implemented under the guise of something that sounds relatively benign and sanitized and neutral. So do you support the federal government uh, having the last say, or do you support the states to decide with their own little uh, you know, laboratories of democracy? Well, if you frame it like that, some people are going to say, I think the state should decide because I want politics to be more localized. But if you explain what the real issue is underlying it, then people go, whoa, I don't want want to ban interracial marriage. What are you, fucking crazy? So this is is what he's saying. He's like, look, man, values don't align in in a lot of the blue states and the red states, so let the red states do whatever they want to do. And if they want to ban interracial marriage, well, that's their prerogative. We've got to be consistent. We can't be hypocritical. So I think abortion should be left to the states. Why shouldn't interracial marriage be left to the states? Amazing. Now, of course, I'm sure a lot of you guys know this. I think it was Loving versus Virginia was the, uh, the Supreme Court case. It was, I think, 1967. And um, 
the ruling from the Supreme Court was under the um, 14th Amendment, you have uh, equal protection and due process, and it would violate the 14th Amendment for states to ban interracial marriage. And, you know, everybody looks at that now and goes, well, thank God. That was, you know, that was a, an important civil rights victory. But he looks at that and says, no, you are infringing on states' rights when you do that. Now, he did uh, try to clean up the mess afterwards, but in my opinion, he did not do a good job. So uh, this is from The Hill. Quote, earlier during a virtual press conference, I misunderstood a line of questioning that ended up being about interracial marriage. Let me be clear on that issue. There's no question the Constitution prohibits discrimination of any kind based on, any, uh, based on race. This is not something that is even up for debate, and I condemn racism in any form, at all levels, and by any states, entities, or individuals. But note, look at the wording there. He says, I misunderstood a line of questioning. You didn't misunderstand it. The guy pressed repeatedly to get a clear answer, and his answer was as clear as you could be. He didn't misunderstand it. He said something that is horrifically stupid and bigoted, and then now he's got to walk it back and be like, I died, no, I didn't hear. I didn't hear what you said. No, you heard it, but now after you notice that like 92% of the country is against you, you're like, mama, mama, me? I don't even know what you guys are talking about. No, no, no. I think, of course, interracial marriage should be legal at the federal level. Well, then why'd you say the exact opposite? Why'd you say the exact opposite? Um, a spokesperson told The Hill that Braun believes in Loving versus Virginia, and he says it shouldn't be overturned. The Times of Northwest Indiana, that's uh, the, the outlet that was asking the question there, noted that Braun had been asked about the subject in different ways and several times to make sure he understood the nature of the question. So in other words, the publication is saying, this is bullshit. We asked and made it clear he understood what we were saying, and he gave a clear answer. So the, the paper is saying, we don't believe him. He said, states' rights, states' rights are more important. So they should be able to decide if they want to overturn interracial marriage. And then now after the backlash, he's just like, okay, 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 my bad, my bad. Okay, you twisted my arm, guys. This is really not one that's debatable or open for debate. Amazing. Amazing. So, you know, this is an area where public pressure, like, works in the sense that when he realized, like, 90% of the country is like, fuck off. He's like, no, 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 I I didn't mean that. But stop and think about this. How would he have reacted if it was only 60% or 65% of the country that was – annoyed with what he was saying here, or if the backlash was only 30% less severe, what would he have done? Maybe there's no clarification, you know? Maybe he doesn't shift his tone immediately. He let, he let his real opinion slide there for a second. He let his real opinion slide. And um, now you know, this is, I mean, this is instructive. It really is. This is educational. Because now you guys know the way that these issues are, are discussed at a national level. Oftentimes, some of the worst beliefs and policies are masked with a veneer of respectability of like, this is just about states' rights. And just be on the lookout for other issues that are like this too, where the actual claim being made seems more sanitized, but the underlying reality of the policy that's being advocated for is actually toxic and odious. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, Lindsey Graham throws a tantrum and storms out of the Supreme Court, of a Supreme Court hearing, I should say.
We are back, we are back, we are back. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show. <clears throat> All right, let's talk about Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham um, went to the hearing for Tanji Brown Jackson. She, of course, is trying to fill the Stephen Breyer Supreme Court vacancy, and she's being pelted with questions from Democrats and Republicans. Of course, the Republican ones are uh, very harsh, and the Democratic ones are very lenient. That's usually the way these things go, depending on who is nominating the potential justice. So um, Lindsay here has a line of questioning on Guantanamo Bay and uh, on whether or not uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson views herself as a um, activist judge. This is the this is the 
phrasing usually from Republicans is that any Democratic appointed judge or justice is uh, activist, meaning they don't want to interpret the law as it was written. They want to make it up to fit with their liberal ideology. And, of course, they think that the uh, conservatives are strict constitutionalists who go by the letter of the law and that's it. This is their framing. Now, of course, that's nonsense. You could be a quote-unquote activist judge if you lean left or lean right. Um, the entire Lochner era was categorized by right-wing justices who were judicial activists, who you know, imposed their own ideology on their decisions and didn't go by the letter of the law. So um, what's interesting here is Lindsey Graham ends up uh, losing his temper, not really at uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, but more at Dick Durbin, a Democratic senator. And he starts raising his voice. He gets all dramatic. He throws a little tantrum, and then he storms out. So, but look at the issue he gets annoyed over. We'll watch, and then I'll come back and break down why he's so immensely incorrect. You wouldn't say that you're an activist judge. I would not say that. Okay. <clears throat> so we'll have a 20 minutes more later on, but here's what I would say. That every group that wants to pack the court that believes this court is a bunch of right-wing nuts are going to destroy America, that considers the Constitution trash, all wanted you picked. And this is all I can say, is the fact that so many of these left-wing radical groups that would destroy the law as we know it, declared war on Michelle Childs and supported you, is problematic for me. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Graham. Let me mention uh, a few points here. Uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn was a strong supporter of Michelle Childs, and now I believe he is publicly supporting your nomination. And Michelle Childs has been nominated by President Biden uh, to be a circuit judge, and she'll be considered by this committee as quickly as possible. On the issue of Guantanamo, there are currently 39 Guantanamo detainees remaining. The annual budget for Guantanamo is $540 million per year, which means each of these detainees uh, is being held at the expense of $12 or $13 million per year. If they would be incarcerated in Florence, Colorado, the Supermax prison, federal prison, the amount would be dramatically, dramatically less. Since 9-11, nearly 1,000 convicted in the United States on terrorism charges. Since 2009, with the beginning of the Obama administration, the recidivism rate of the Guantanamo detainees released is 5%. Mr. Chairman, according to the Department, uh, Director of National Intelligence, is 31%. Somebody's wrong here. If you're going to talk about what I said, I'm going to respond to what you said. If we close Gitmo and move them to Colorado, do you support indefinite detention under the law of war for these detainees? I would just say, uh, I'm giving the facts. Uh, the answer is no. I want to make sure that it's clear. The 31% you referred to goes back to the year 2009. What does it matter when it goes back to? We had them and they got loose and they started killing people. Well, I could just say that. Uh, if you're one of the people yes. killed in 2005, does it matter to you when we release them? Just the, the president of your own party released them. And I'm suggesting the system has failed miserably and advocates to change this system like she was, in, was, was advocating would destroy our ability to protect this country. We're at war. We're not fighting a crime. 
This is not some passage of time event. As long as they're dangerous, I hope they all die in jail if they're going to go back and kill Americans. It won't bother me one bit if 39 of them die in prison. That's a better outcome than letting them go. If it costs $500 million to keep them in jail, keep them in jail because they're going to go back to the fight. Look at the freaking Afghan government. It's made up of former detainees at Gitmo. This whole thing by the left about this war ain't working. Let me also note that Larry Thompson, who served as Deputy Attorney General under President George W. Bush, Orrin Kerr. I like how Durbin just went back to, like, being very monotone in reading something after Lindsey Graham throws a tantrum and storms out. Um, so, first of all, let me say why I think Lindsey Graham is doing this. The reason he did this is because he went viral during the Brett Kavanaugh hearing when he started screaming and yelling and getting animated and being dramatic. And a lot of people on the right viewed what he did there as like righteous indignation standing up for what is correct. And so he had huge fundraising after that. He got more love from right-wing media than he had ever gotten previously when he did that. So I think it, it, on some level he's trying to recreate that by being dramatic, being animated, yelling. So I think that's definitely in the back of his mind, if not on the front of his mind. So I think that's why he's doing it. Now, in terms of the substance, this, is, it, it, this actually infuriates me. So uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson um, represented some of the people at Gitmo. And what everybody needs to understand is Guantanamo Bay and indefinite detention and suspension of due process rights and habeas corpus, that is such a gigantic stain on this country because it is essentially doing the least American thing you could do and pretending it's the most American thing you can do. It is rank authoritarianism. And Lindsey Graham is saying his position is keep Guantanamo Bay open. Uh, don't release anybody from Guantanamo Bay. You should have never released anybody from Guantanamo Bay. Um, indefinite detention is great and it, it should be indefinite in Guantanamo. You shouldn't even have them in U.S. supermax prisons. Um, and forget due process, because it's a war, and these are the laws of war, and so people's rights, it's a stupid conversation to have during war. We need to protect ourselves first and foremost. I care about security, and that's my perspective on it. So that's his take. That's his take. Now, the problem with that perspective, and I'm proud that on this show, you know, we've documented this over the years. I've been doing this show full-time since, like, 2012, but even going back to when I first started doing videos just for fun, one of my very first videos was about Guantanamo Bay detainees because many of them were totally innocent. They never did anything wrong. So uh, Marat Karnaz is the first one that comes to mind. This guy was, I believe, a German citizen who was um, either in Afghanistan or Pakistan. He was rounded up and then shipped to Guantanamo Bay. Now, The Guardian had done a story years later where we learned that the Bush administration cut a deal with warlords in Afghanistan and Pakistan and said to them, look, we were just attacked on 9-11. Um, you know, we know Al-Qaeda did it. We know that they're terrorists. So what we want you guys to do is send us Al-Qaeda operatives. And so we cut a deal with warlords in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And they got, I don't know if it was monetary rewards or, or weapons or whatever, or both. But they went around. You're not going to be surprised to hear this. turns out warlords in Afghanistan and Pakistan are not the most trustworthy people. So they went around and rounded up all of their political enemies and sh shipped them to the U.S., and then we put them in Guantanamo Bay, 
locked him up and threw away the key. Now, there was no due process. It was indefinite detention. So they were just stuck there for years and years and years and years and years. And they were innocent. They didn't do anything wrong. Now, I'm sure there are some people at Guantanamo who were or are, you know, uh, affiliated with al-Qaeda or ISIS or it was before ISIS existed, but are uh, jihadists. I'm sure of it. But, guys, this is why you have due process. This is why you have a system in place. This is why everybody gets their day in court. Because if indeed somebody is guilty, you prove it. You prove it in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt, and then you get to lock them up. But Lindsey Graham says, throw it away. Throw away the whole American system. Throw away due process. Um, The system is too feeble and brittle to deal with this. So let's just uh, be authoritarians and act like dictators and lock people up and throw away the key, and that's the end of it. And so now he's getting all animated, uh, basically saying, like, you should be in favor of locking these people up indefinitely. No, the real problem here was the original sin of ever locking them up indefinitely and never giving anybody their day in court. That was the real original sin. The real original sin was the conception of the idea of the Bush administration, Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Condoleezza Rice, Paul Wolfowitz, all of them, their idea of like, let's become the devil that we're trying to avoid. You can't, the U.S. can't go around the world and say, we're fighting for freedom and democracy and justice, and then throw away our own justice system here at home. Because then you're the world's biggest hypocrites and you don't believe in the ideals you pretend to believe in. But Lindsey Graham still proudly to this day is like, Guantanamo Bay is awesome. Don't release anybody. Do indefinite detention. Don't even put them in U.S. Supermax prisons. Uh, Just keep them locked up over there and don't even think about it. That's his position. Well, again, there's a giant number of people who were locked up, who were totally innocent, didn't do anything wrong, and were wrongly swept up by warlords in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And he has never, Lindsey Graham has never said a word acknowledging that or talking about those mistakes because again he's just an authoritarian and he's wrong on this and he gets all animated and all huffy and all puffy because he's offended that you don't want to be as authoritarian as me Hmm. because he's like the recidivism rate of the people locked up at guantanamo was 31 percent and then uh dick durbin's like well after the obama era so the ones obama released the recidivism rate was only five percent and he's like well but it was 31 percent and he's trying to use that as an argument of like, well, that's why you just perpetually lock them up forever and throw away the key. It is as un-American as you can possibly get to say the Constitution is inconvenient during this wartime, and so ignore it. If you ignore the Constitution at the moment you need it the most, you definitely do not believe in the Constitution. It's like with the debate around free speech. Nobody needs free speech to say rainbows are pretty and uh, puppies are cute and apple pie is delicious, and mama is awesome, you don't need free speech protections for that. You need free speech for the asshole who's out there saying the most controversial shit. You go, but for him, he doesn't get it. Well, then you don't believe in free speech. You, Lindsey Graham, do not believe in due process, do not believe in the Constitution. You're an authoritarian monster. That's what you are. No different than a fucking tin pot, tin pot dictator in the developing world that Lindsey Graham would look at and say, look at this barbarian. You're looking in the mirror, dipshit. That's what you're doing. So anyway, the, the fake theatrics, you know, like, it's one thing if you genuinely get angry, of course. We all do that if you're a public speaker of any degree. But it's like fake theatrics. What the left's doing with this war is not, is not working. 
I'm Lindsey Graham and I'm mad. Mm. Shut up. Shut up. You're not fooling anybody. You're not going to have the, this isn't a viral moment like your Kavanaugh moment. If anything, the only people talking about this are the left to make fun of you. Okay. So there was an awesome moment during the Supreme Court hearing for Katanji Brown-Jackson. Um, you have, oh, who is this again? Oh, fuck, is this John Cornyn? I forget this guy's name, and I don't know why. Hold Just on. Ask, I don't know you. Oh, it is Cornyn. Okay. Anyway, sorry. So we have this awesome moment um, in the hearing for Katanji Brown-Jackson to be on the Supreme Court. And you have John Cornyn. Uh, exasperated, uh, just saying, did you call Bush and Cheney war criminals? Or I think it was just George Bush. Did you, or maybe Bush and Rumsfeld, something like that. Did you call them war criminals? <laughs> and um, so Katanji Brown-Jackson gives a very political answer here because, of course, she's trying to get on the Supreme Court. She can't, you know, make the entire Republican Party despise her. You know, she's got to be she has to be sophisticated about how to approach this and intelligent, and she's got to navigate these, these um, choppy waters. And, but I love, you're going to see what Cornyn asks, you're going to see her response, and then you're going to see, I think it's Dick Durbin jumps in and gives the full context of it, about you know, where this claim comes from that Katanji Brown-Jackson called uh, Bush a war criminal. And the context is awesome, because it is like the most revealing enlightening moment of all time. Watch. I don't know you well, but I've been impressed by our interaction, and you've been gracious and charming. Why in the world would you call Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and George W. Bush war criminals in a legal filing? It seems so out of character for you. Senator, you may have been talk are you talking about briefs that I or habeas petitions that I filed? Talking about when you were representing a member of the Taliban and uh, the Department of Defense identified him as an intelligence officer for the Taliban and you referred to the Secretary of Defense and the sitting president of the United States as war criminals. Why would you do something like that? It seems so out of character. Well, Senator, I don't remember that particular reference and I um, was representing my clients and making arguments, um, I'd, I'd have to take a look at what you, what you meant. I did not um, intend to disparage the President or the, the Secretary of Defense. Well, war, being a war criminal has uh, huge ramifications. You could be subject to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and hauled before that international tribunal and tried for war crimes. So it's not a casual comment, I would suggest. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cornyn. Senator Whitehouse. I would like to make a statement um, in terms of some research that was undertaken during the break. Uh, Judge Jackson, earlier Senator Cornyn said that you had called former President George W. Bush and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld a, quote, war criminal, unquote. I noticed a little surprise in your reaction, and I was surprised by the allegation. 
uh, during your service as a public defender, you filed several habeas petitions against the United States, naming former President Bush and former Secretary Rumsfeld in their official capacities. You were advocating on behalf of individuals who argued they were civilians, wrongly classified as enemy combatants of the United States, and your filing was part of your professional responsibility to uh, zealously advocate for your clients. In those petitions, the individuals raised more than a dozen claims for relief, one of which was an allegation that the government had sanctioned torture against the individuals, which constituted war crimes under the Alien Tort Statute. <clears throat> the Alien Tort Statute allows courts to hear cases for alleged violations of the law of nations or the treaties of the United States. Apparently, this is what Senator Cornyn was referencing. So to be clear, there was no time where you called President Bush or Secretary Rumsfeld a, quote, war criminal, close quote. Did you want correct, to answer Senator. Okay. No, thank you. That was correct. Thank you very much. We now recognize Senator Lee. That was awesome. So do you understand what happened there? The response is, I didn't call you a war criminal. It's just that you were officially charged as one in a court filing. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that. That's, that's just beautiful. It's the biggest self-own ever of Cornyn against Bush and Rumsfeld, like Republican self-own. Now, by the way, as I was watching this, I was thinking, this is why a guy like me could never get in any sort of official position. Because when they say, why did you call Bush and Rumsfeld war criminals? I'd say, because they are. Next question. I mean, that's the truth. They are. Now, again, her, some people would look at that and say, well, why didn't she say that? And Guys, she's not a talk show host. She's not. She is trying to get on the Supreme Court where she can affect positive change. And her record, by the way, is much better than anybody else who is being considered for this position by Biden. Um, and in order to get on that court, yeah, you have to smooth the rough edges off of the reality here. You've got to be nuanced, and you've got to find a way to not blow up your attempt to get on the court. So I, I have no issue whatsoever with how she reacted there. I think that it was an intelligent, sophisticated way where she's not blowing up her chances. And I mean, she did say like, well, was this in a, a habeas petition? Like what? So, and the answer is basically, yes. Why did you call them war criminals? I didn't, but they were officially charged as them because they are that. Sorry, that might be politically incorrect and hurt your feelings to point that out, but it's the reality. So, I mean, you guys don't need to hear this rant. I've done it a thousand times, but you know what? Just on the off chance, somebody watching this video, it's the first time they're watching a secular talk video, which, by the way, is probably not because YouTube likes to <laughs> not spread our things far and wide like they used to do. Anyway, um, so everybody knows the Bush administration did torture. Now, torture is illegal under U.S. law, the Constitution, and international law. So you have an Eighth Amendment protection from cruel and unusual punishment. The, the government can't torture people. That is cruel and unusual punishment. But they did do that. Um, we have, there was, during World War II, Japanese soldiers waterboarded U.S. soldiers. Our response to that, when the war was over, we prosecuted them as war criminals and put them to death. So when Japan did it against us, it's torture, and you should be put to death. When we do it against others, it's not torture, it's enhanced interrogation, and we allow it to be legal. 
an absolute colossal joke. And by the way, it wasn't just waterboarding. Now, Christopher Hitchens very famously said, because there was a debate, about, is it torture, is it not torture? Dumbest debate of all time, mucked up. Uh, Christopher Hitchens was like, I don't know, I'm going to find out. And he went and he was like, I'm going to get waterboarded, see if I think it's torture. After he did it, and he was agnostic at first, after he did it, he came back and said, it is 100% without a doubt torture. You are drowning when they waterboard you. Now, beyond that, we did way more than that. We did sleep deprivation. We did loud music torture. We did, there were people who died as a result of our torture. One of the things we did is threw cold water on somebody and left them uh, handcuffed in a cold cell at night, and they died. They died. And there are endless examples of this. It happened at Abu Ghraib. It happened at Guantanamo Bay. I mean, really disgusting, authoritarian, barbaric acts here. That's what we did. And by the way, of course, the cherry on top is, as you guys know, a lot of the people who we had locked up at Guantanamo Bay in particular were innocent because we had cut a deal with warlords in Afghanistan and Pakistan and said, send us the guys who attacked us on 9-11, send us al-Qaeda, and they just shipped us their political enemies. They didn't actually try to find al-Qaeda. They were just like, here, yeah, this is al-Qaeda. So, uh, yeah, those are war crimes, without a doubt. It's a war crime. It's not up in the air. It's not a question. It's a war crime. Now, again, Republicans might not like that because, well, we're the good guys, and when we do bad things, it's good because we mean well or something. No. No, 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 no. That is the hallmark of a hypocrite, and that is the definition of not having an objective standard. That's the definition of not enforcing law and order for everybody. And Republicans love how we believe in law and order, unless our guys commit crimes, in which case it's awesome and we don't believe in law and order. Horrendous. Uh, the other thing, of course, they, they ripped up the Constitution, no due process, no habeas corpus. They spied on the entire country um, and just had the rubber stamp FISA court. That, of course, that shouldn't be allowed. That's a violation of your uh, Fourth Amendment protections from, from – um, why am I blanking on this? <laughs> your – it's not right to privacy. Fourth Amendment protections – unreasonable search and seizure. I don't know why I blanked on that phrase. I've said it a million times on the show, but it's early and my brain is not functioning. Anyway, um, the other thing is, and this is the most obvious one of all, they illegally invaded a country that didn't attack us. That's what the war in Iraq was. Now, the war in Afghanistan was slightly different. I still think it shouldn't have been done. But at least they had the argument of Osama bin Laden is hiding in Afghanistan, which, by the way, when we eventually got him, it was in Pakistan. But at the time, they said Osama bin Laden is hiding in Afghanistan. The Taliban is protecting al-Qaeda. So we went to war with Afghanistan now. I would have understood some sort of limited mission to just take out Osama or, or whatever, uh, send in SEAL Team 6 or some shit. I would have understood that at the time, after 9-11, of course. But they didn't do that. They did a war, and we were there for over 20 years, and the entire thing was... Quagmire is understating it. Debacle is understating it. It was an illegal occupation of that country, and there was endless war profiteering going on. There, you know, the Afghanistan report came out where people in the military, in the government, were like, why are we even there? What are we even doing? And, of course, the defense contractors got phenomenally wealthy in that time frame, and um, there's a lot of mineral wealth in Afghanistan that we probably wanted to get our hands on, on top of doing it for geopolitical and geostrategic reasons. But... Iraq was even worse. It was, oh, Saddam is in bed with Osama bin Laden. That's why we're going. Well, that turned out not to be true. Now, when we turned out it wasn't true, did we just withdraw and say, our bad? No. They moved the goalposts and said, uh, we're creating weapons of mass destruction. Now, the implication there was he's going to create them and use them on, like, Cleveland or something. 
And that wasn't true. Not only was he not going to use it on us, he didn't even fucking have them. He didn't even have them. He didn't even have them. And then when that blew up, they moved the goalpost again to, well, he's just a, he's a dictator and that's bad. Okay, yeah, that's bad, but we also supported him at the height of his atrocities. You didn't have a moral issue with that at the time. And also, we support 73% of the world's dictatorships. This idea of, we got to overthrow the dictators. Are you going to overthrow 73% of the world's dictatorships, which, by the way, are our allies? No, of course not. They just moved the goalposts, moved the goalposts, moved the goalposts. And uh, the entire time, it was total bullshit. Iraq had a lot to do with the oil. It had a lot to do with the profits for the military-industrial complex. It had a lot to do with imperialism. And this is the reality. To call them war criminals is obvious. It's the most obvious thing in the world. It's so obvious. And still, to this, to this day, Republican politicians, are, they refuse to acknowledge the reality. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why Trump, in 2016, was more of a breath of fresh air than any of the other Republicans. Because he would rail against the Bush administration, and he would rail against the Iraq war. And when Jeb Bush would say dumb things like, my brother kept us safe, Trump would be like, the towers came down under his watch. That, of course, is not safe. <laughs> that was the biggest failure. And he had a memo on his desk that said, bin Laden determined to attack in the U.S., and he wasn't able to stop it. So, anyway, I'm off track here. But the bottom line is, he's a war criminal. That's a fact. And if you don't like it, that's your problem. That's, you know, you're, you haven't digested the reality that oftentimes, even though we cloak ourselves in the language of virtuousness and being all that is good and just in the world, it's nonsense. And every empire throughout history does that. No empire, when they're committing atrocities, is like, we are now committing atrocities. No, they say we're crusading for the correct values, whatever those values are at the time and place. And that's what we do. But these guys are so dumb, they haven't digested that point, and they never will, because they don't want to. They would honestly argue with me and be like, no, Bush was good. Okay, if you say so. But um, it's based that she represented uh, some Guantanamo detainees. It absolutely is. And um, it's based that there was a filing where Bush was officially accused of war crime. And um, that doesn't make me like her less. It makes me like her more. All right, next. So Joe Biden at the Business Roundtable um, said something here, which isn't getting nearly as many headlines as it should, in my opinion, but he talks about what sounds like are imminent incoming Russian cyber attacks. Take a look. But uh, look, today my administration is for the new warnings that based on evolving intelligence, Russia may be planning a cyber attack against us. As I've said, the magnitude of Russia's cyber capacity is fairly consequential, and it's coming. The federal government is doing its part to get ready, but under U.S. law, as you all remember, the private sector, all of you, largely decides the protections that we will or will not take. So this is something, I've talked about this in a number of my breaking news segments on um, the war in Ukraine, that with all these actions that the U.S. is taking against Russia now, basically unleashing every sanction under the sun. Most of the swift banking sanctions, uh, now going after the oil and gas, just imploding the economy, every U.S. corporation pulling out, whether it's McDonald's or whoever, Visa and MasterCard, you know, not being there anymore. 
you have, hell was unleashed on the Russian economy now. My issue with that, as you guys know, is as a matter of principle, you can't do collective punishment. You can't punish some random Russian who had nothing to do with this, who's a person like any other person, who's just trying to live their life and get by and take care of their kids and be happy. You can't say, well, now I'm going to destroy you because of what Putin did, because honestly, a lot of people are against what Putin did. I mean, tens of thousands of people at this point, potentially. Uh, highest number I've seen is just over 10,000, but who knows, because that was as of a week or two ago are getting arrested for protesting the war. You want to punish them? They didn't do anything wrong. They're on the side of peace. So I don't agree with all the sanctions that were unleashed. I would sanction Putin and the oligarchs and um, the military. But anything beyond that is collective punishment, and that's like the definition of bigotry. And it's unfair to those people, and so I wouldn't do it. But So as a result of hell being unleashed on the Russian economy, um, people struggle to grasp, and I don't know why, because it strikes me as really stupid that they don't grasp it. And especially like prominent conservatives, don't grasp this at all. <laughs> this idea of like, you do know they can do stuff in return, right? You do understand that. You do understand nothing's happening in a vacuum. It's not like we say something and we, or we do something and we have the final action and that's it. No, quite the opposite. There is going to be retaliation. There is going to be retribution. The form that that takes, I don't know. But one of the things I kept citing over and over is maybe cyber attack. Now, the extra scary part about that is what Joe Biden said right there, which is, look, he seems to think they're imminent. I don't know if they are, but he seems to think they're imminent. And if that happens, we have a system set up here where it's mostly on the private sector to, to do their own security. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. A lot of these companies have had no incentive throughout the years of getting that top-level security that can withstand some other superpower foreign nation launching a cyber attack. So what happens? Ru Russia launches a cyber attack, and what? The Internet is off for weeks, a month, more? I don't know. I'm not an expert, but it's certainly in the realm of possibility. There's certainly the potential for that. That would be devastating. That would be crippling. That would also massively hurt our economy, potentially plunge it into a recession or even a depression. So this is why, like, you have to think about these things in an intelligent way, like it's a chess match. But these motherfuckers are playing checkers. If that, you know? And it's just, of course there's going to be retaliation. Maybe you should have been more strategic in the type of sanctions you used, both for moral reasons and for strategic reasons. But, you know, for avoiding a worst-case scenario reaction. And look, at this point, cyber attacks are like, if that's all we get against us, we should consider ourselves lucky because we're, this is brinksmanship. We're right up to that line of World War III. And people, some people think that's hyperbolic. I assure you, it is not. I assure you, uh, it's as real as a heart attack. So I don't know, man, not good. It's not good that the private sector does most of their own security, and Biden's pointing that out here, and it's not good that he's saying the attacks are kind of imminent. I don't think this is something that the U.S. would have been willing to tolerate had they known in advance. If we do X, Y, and Z, this is what happens in reaction. I think most people would say, fuck that, then don't do it, or do a different version of it. Now, maybe even if, you even if you do the sanctions that I support against Putin, the oligarchs, and the military, maybe if you do that, he still responds with cyber attacks. That's a fair point. That's a fair counterargument. We don't know. But then we fall back on the moral argument of, like, doing collective punishment is stupid and wrong and unethical anyway, so he shouldn't have done it. But 
Uh, rough waters ahead, man. That's my takeaway. And um, I will say, because some people look at this and say, well, Biden, maybe Biden's not even telling the truth. Um, I think he thinks that they actually are coming. And remember, U.S. intelligence is wrong a lot, and they lie a lot. But the fact of the matter is, in the lead-up to the invasion of Ukraine, they got the timeline wrong of what was going to happen, but they were right on the overarching point, which is, it's going to happen. So should that lead you on this issue to maybe be a little more open to the idea that it's potentially happening? I think so. I think it'd be be naive not to say it's at least a possibility, if not a strong possibility. So, uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. I don't know about you guys, but I'll go through internet withdrawal myself. <laughs> I will if if this, it goes down or there are massive problems. But buckle up, man. It is probably coming. Okay. Next. So now we have a story that might make me cry. Um Permanent daylight saving time hit a wall in the House of Representatives. So let me show you this article here from The Hill. This explains some of it. Legislation to make daylight saving time permanent passed the Senate last week, but the House is not ready to be a rubber stamp, spelling potential trouble ahead for its passage in the lower chamber. Leaders on both sides of the aisle have made clear they are not in a rush to act on the legislation, with some citing the focus on the crisis unfolding in Ukraine, as well as the need for further review from members before taking up the proposal. And though the idea has enjoyed bipartisan support across Congress, its path in the lower chamber is uncertain as a few members have begun to call for more research, oh God, into the proposed measure before signing on to the push. Representative Pramila Jayapal told The Hill on Friday that while she has supported doing away with the semi-annual time change in the past, she's gotten mixed reactions from her constituents over the idea. Quote, I've been hearing a lot about this from my constituents recently because we're in Seattle and it's so dark, she said. And so if we make daylight saving time permanent, it's going to be dark until like 9 o'clock in the morning. Though Jayapal said she thinks having one time zone is just easier, she added that she wants to pay attention to what people are saying, while also noting concerns that some have shared about the potential impact the proposed change could have on learning. So a number of, uh, they go on in this article, a number of um, Democratic politicians weigh in. One of them makes a good point about, well, now you're going to have, you know, parents associations jump in and farmers associations jump in and they're going to say, well, we don't want this or if anything, we want to go permanent standard time. And so they're going to muddy the waters. There's going to be lobbying on that side of the issue. And then the other point people make, and this is a good one too, is the longer it goes without passing, the less likely it is to pass. So every day that passes that the legislation isn't passed, the more unlikely it is it becomes law. And so, look, this might be the first time in history that I'll say this and maybe the last, but... What Pramila Jayapal is saying here? No, wrong. I don't agree with Pramila Jayapal. I agree with Marco Rubio, who's been pushing for this relentlessly, which, again, credit to him. Who was it? Him and Sheldon Whitehouse, maybe, who did this legislation? And in the Senate, again, in the Senate, it was, in the Senate, it was unanimous. It was just a voice vote, which is like, again, first and last time, based U.S. Senate on that one. Holy shit. Um, now, they oh, we need more study. We need this. We need that. Well, what I want to do now, I'm going to go ahead. This is an article that was uh, in Time magazine from like maybe a year and a half ago or so. And let me read you some of the reasons why, in my opinion, this is really a no-brainer. So let's take a look at this article here. So again, in Time, they say the following. 
Research suggests an association between the biannual clock change and not just seasonal affective disorder, that's seasonal depression, but stroke and cardiac arrest as well. By allowing more people to commute home during daylight hours, permanent daylight saving time could likewise decrease the risk of car accidents, saving more than 360 lives each year, according to a meta-study by Rutgers researchers. What's more, making year-round daylight saving time and having fewer hours of darkness could help reduce crime. I never heard this one. According to the Brookings Institute, robbery rates fall by an average of 7% when daylight saving time begins. When Congress extended daylight saving time by four weeks in 2007, it resulted in $59 million in annual social cost saving because of a reduction in robberies. Then, of course, there's the economy. A study conducted by J.P. Morgan Chase revealed that consumer spending drops by about 3.5% when the nation makes the switch back to standard time, a result of fewer daylight hours in the evening. This amounts to millions of dollars lost by retailers and small businesses each year. Making daylight saving time permanent, however, would push back sunsets to reasonable hours, encouraging shopping and retail sales during the winter months. So, look, that's just a little taste of the benefits of it. Um, now, if you research this, this topic more, you do see there are studies on the other side of it. But I think most of the, the problems that are associated um, with the other side of the argument here is that just the changing of the clocks by its very nature is the problem. So that's when you know, the, your circadian rhythm gets fucked up and all these things. So the arguments I've heard on the other side of this are, you know, are that and this idea of like, well, what about in the, the mornings are going to be darker and in the dead of winter? And what about the kids going to the bus stop? And, you know, that seems like a problem. And some people will not like that they get up in the dark and, and all that stuff. So nothing's perfect, right? There's always trade-offs in one direction or another. In my opinion, based on the stuff I've read here, uh, I think it makes sense to stay on daylight saving time. Also, just for the, you know, just not change the clocks anymore is good. But then it just comes down to a, a disagreement between morning people and night people, basically, I think. Where, yeah, more, the more morning people might say, I'd rather stay on permanent standard time or do the, the clock change because I like the morning. And if I'm waking up and it's a little darker for a little longer, I might have a problem with that. But, you know... I told you guys, at least in my audience, it's over 70% of you are more night people. And I would rather have the sunset later throughout the year. And my biggest point in this conversation is just a deeply personal one, which is I think I struggle a little bit from the seasonal affective thing, the seasonal affective disorder, which is, used to be called seasonal depression. And for me, it is definitely almost a cure to – stay on permanent daylight saving time because that means the latest that the sun will set in New York in the dead of winter is after five o'clock, which I can handle. I can, I can deal with that. I can stomach that. It's when the sun, when the sun's set at like four thirty. Oh my God. I just, I can't, I can't do it. And you know, another interesting point on this is if you stay on permanent standard time, which again is the, when the sun sets earlier and rises earlier, in the dead of summer, you're going to have the sun rise in New York at like 4.30 a.m. Like, no, no. Sun coming up at 4.30, like, what the fuck is that? Well, I like to get up early, so I get up at like fucking 4 a.m. Like, that's some psycho shit, dog. That's some psycho shit. So, look, in, in a sense, this is personal to me. 
Because I know, as somebody with seasonal affective disorder, when that sun sets later, I feel a hell of a lot better. I do. I feel a hell of a lot better. So permanent daylight saving time to me is, is it's a no-brainer to me. I get that some people disagree. I get that there are arguments on the other side of it. But I just, you know, cited some studies here which say it's actually good to stay on permanent daylight saving time. Um, and oh, there's one other point that I'm blanking on. Fuck. What was it? It was a good one, and now it just went right out of my head. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. It ain't coming back. Anyway, uh, I, I do take this personal. If somebody says, hey, don't, don't make this change, you're telling me I'd like you to be depressed for half the year. It's like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's super dickish of you. <laughs> so it's a shame that this thing hit a snag because it's the one good thing that the Senate has done in so fucking long. And I get there's other more important issues going on, but for the love of God, throw us a bone every now and then. Throw us a bone. So the House of Representatives, get your shit together. Don't like, we need 978 studies. We need 40 different uh, lobbying groups to weigh in. You know, we need to drag our feet. We need to overthink it. Like, no. Sun setting later equals nicer to most people. You have all the reduction in the strokes and the heart attacks and all that stuff. A lot of people just don't like switching the clocks. So some people it would be whatever, keep the permanent standard or permanent daylight saving time. And they're just like, do that. So, okay, but just this is the one that passed the Senate. Jump on it now. And there was a time in the 1970s, to be fair, where they did this. And apparently many states didn't like it after they did it, and so they switched back. Okay, fair enough. But at the very least, pass this and then let the states, if they want to opt out, opt out. But I would hope that the majority of them wouldn't opt out. And honestly, I don't think, I don't think they would. I, I think most states would probably stick with it. So the time has come. Do the right thing because it'll certainly make me feel a hell of a lot better in the winter. That's for sure. Okay, next. All right, number 11. This story, ooh, hold on to me. Put this thing. This story is um, really something else, man. For people who think, well, Trump is definitely dead and gone, he's not going to make a political comeback. Look, there are warning signs that he'll self-destruct, can't stop talking about rigged election, rigged election, rigged election, but there's some indicators that he's, uh, he's more alive and ready than ever before. So take a look at this here from Ken Vogel. Cash on hand. This is as of February 28th. Trump, 110.4 million. DNC, 52.9 million. RNC, 45.5 million. Let me explain what that means. Trump's Save America PAC, this is PAC money we're talking about here. Trump's Save America PAC has more money on hand than Democrats and Republicans combined. That is stunning. 
this guy has a total and complete lockdown on his base. Not only that, the other thing is Trump still can raise big money from big donors and corporations. He's going to be a force based on this alone, dog. Based on this alone, he's going to be a force. He is. you got to keep it real. Now, of course, the other thing is, remember when Trump used to pretend I self-funded my entire campaign? Really? So what's this? Is that $110.4 million of your own money? No. It's not. Of course it's not. I mean, the real thing, nobody should take any super PAC money, for example, and really the best way, the most ethical way to run for office is to only take small dollar donations. Obviously, Trump does not do that. Sometimes he pretends like this is what he does. But if he has this much money now, that's also an indicator he will continue to raise a tremendous amount of money. And for him to have more than both parties combined in politics, Money is power. It's true. And it is true for presidential races. It's slightly different because there's so much uh, coverage of all the different candidates, so much national news coverage. So the money difference is less than in congressional races and Senate races and local elections. Uh, like the money doesn't matter as much in a presidential race versus those other races, but it still matters a lot, man. And that money means you can build infrastructure on the ground means you can run ads in your favor and against your opponents, means you can um, buy allegiances, you can shuffle some of that money to other candidates who you support, you can build a giant network, like a Trump network of political players. It, uh, it is a massive red flag, massive red flag. And it's almost, when you look at like how sheepish and meek the... Um, the other Republicans have been in distancing themselves from Trump. Uh, it's going to come back to bite him in the ass, man. I get Mitch McConnell and a bunch of others are like, well, let's not talk about the last election. Let's move forward. But it's like nobody cares what Mitch McConnell says anyway in the country. And it, they're always the meekest denunciations of all time. Like Mike Pence did it recently. We've got to look forward, not backward. It's wrong that I could have overturned the election. I can't. And he just moves on. And it's like, well, this guy's crusading around the country, screaming the opposite from the top of his lungs to packed rallies, and you're like sheepishly saying it in front of a tiny room of elite donors in, uh, in D.C. I don't think they realize the potential this guy still has. Again, I'll caution, he can self-destruct, he can't stop talking about the rigged election, nobody wants to hear that stuff anymore, only 15% of even Republicans say we should talk about that. Um, but outside of that, he's a force to be reckoned with. And Biden's half dead, as we've seen. Kamala's a joke. Pete Buttigieg is a joke. The, what are, the other potential people who would run seem like rookies and noobs compared to Trump. So it is, it, this is not good, man. This is, not, this is as serious. He's, he's positioning himself to be as serious of a political player as humanly possible. And, of course, my guess is the media is going to fuck this up a thousand ways because they fucked it up every other time they covered him. You know, and they'll make him more powerful, not less powerful. How's that for a fact? Trump has more than both parties combined. Money in the bank, ready to go, ready to campaign, ready to get involved. Oh, boy. Our nightmare is just beginning. All right, next. 
So I have one more here for you um, of Trump's interview with Stuart Varney. Trump's asked directly about climate change, which, by the way, I'm surprised Stuart Varney asked this question. Never in a million years would I have guessed that Stuart Varney would ask a question, direct, direct question about climate change. Um, and what you're going to see here is Trump's brain malfunctions. It melts. It drips out of his ears. He goes back to his standard, uh, really dumb talking points. Let's watch now react. parts of that that I love. Uh, they were talking about global freezing. In other words, you have a globe that's going to freeze. <laughs> you just said the same thing. In other words, there were no in other words. There's global freezing, which means the globe was going to freeze. That's not in other words, dog. That's not in other words. And then he goes, um, he's asked about climate change. In my opinion, you have a thing called weather. That's that's not an opinion. There is a thing called weather, and it goes up and it goes down. It goes up, it goes down. Oh, God. It's almost like he's proud at the fact that he never really read any of the relevant scientific literature or even articles on the science. It's like he proudly is like, I'm just going to give the dumb guy reflexive reactionary take here. Climate change, where the climate is always changing. Now, by the way, this global uh, freezing thing, so he got a couple things, I mean, a number of things were wrong about it. Number one, he said in the 1920s, they were talking about, it wasn't the 1920s, it was the 1970s, and it was never really based on the science. So if you uh, Google global cooling, Wikipedia page, pull that right up, it says global cooling was a conjecture, especially during the 1970s, of imminent cooling of the earth, culminating in a period of extensive glaciation due to the cooling effects of aerosols and orbital forcing. Some press reports in the 1970s speculated about continued cooling. These did not accurately reflect the scientific literature of the time, which was generally more concerned with warming from an enhanced greenhouse effect. So there's that. It's not too much of a surprise that with us pumping all this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, uh, you're going to have the enhanced greenhouse effect. This is very scientifically well understood that that tends to um, change the climate in very destructive ways. You have more um, you have more extreme weather events. Some areas are are more drought prone. Some areas get too much rain. You have the glaciers melting in Antarctica. I mean, we just I just saw a study the other day. It was 70 degrees above normal in Antarctica the other day, 70 degrees. Now, again, that's just one little data point, but they've done what's called a meta-analysis on this, which is look at all of the like verified scientific literature and try to crunch the numbers and figure out what's really going on here. And in no uncertain terms, the climate is warming. Uh, 
the climate is changing, every way it's worse than what the worst case scenario was predicted as. I mean, think about that for a second. It's always worse than the worst case scenario. And so look, they're going to be, there's some reporting that the Middle East is going to be uninhabitable by a certain date in the future. So there's another mass refugee crisis. There's going to be wars over water. That seems important. And it's just, he just swaps it all aside. There's a thing called weather, and you go up. In my opinion, there's a thing called weather, and it goes up and it goes down. And there's global freezing, which in other words means global freezing, which in other words means global freezing, which in other words means the globe is going to freeze. Oh, man. And again, this guy is probably the favorite to be our next president. Uh, More cash on hand than Democrats and Republicans combined, tied with Biden in the polls right now. Uh, pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, of course. Not good, man. Not good. You get the sense even Stuart Barney, as he's listening to that, is like, ugh. I, don't, I think Stuart Barney's a climate science denier, too, but even he is probably thinking, dude, dress it up a little bit. You've got to give me slightly more intellectual arguments than this. This fucking stupid shooting from the hip, proudly... Uh, anti-intellectual take. And now is the last time to be saying stuff like this, obviously. Why? Because currently uh, we are, you know, Russia is, is, gives a lot of oil and natural gas to uh, Europe. Europe is very reliant on that. Now, of course, there's a conflict in Ukraine. There's the war in Ukraine, and we're sanctioning Russian oil and gas. That's about 8% of our market but it makes up about half of Germany's market. So there's this like oil crisis in a sense. And so you got to sort of make up the gap in the short run, but then in the long run, the real solution is, well, let's just get off of the oil so we don't have these unholy alliances, whether it be with Saudi Arabia or Russia or whoever, and become energy independent. Now, people say, well, we should make the U.S. energy independent. Okay, we already the number, are the number one producer of natural gas in the world, number one. Problem is, that's ExxonMobil's and Chevron's and the oil companies. That's not the people's oil and gas. It should be. I'm in favor of nationalizing it, and then we could, instead of exporting all of it to make more money, we could use it domestically. I am in favor of that. So, but we already are the number one producer, so in a sense we could be energy independent. We're not because of capitalism and the way the global economy works and that we outsource all of it, and it's more about profit than anything else. And so I would definitely nationalize it, but then at the same time you do that, you have to go all in on getting off of the sauce. You have to do it. There's no way around it. And unfortunately, um, at a moment when that should be the primary conversation, it's not at all. And you still have these idiots going right back to their standard well of talking points where they deny climate change. They act like it's just the weather. It goes up and down. And actually, global cooling was the thing everybody was worried about. So it's nothing. No, it is definitely something. Nationalize the oil industry, use it more domestically, stop relying on Saudi Arabia, stop relying on Russia, stop relying on all these other places. And then also do that Green New Deal to get us green and renewable technology to make it so that whatever it is, you get the breakthroughs, you get the new patents, you get the wind, you get the solar, you get the nuclear, you get the geothermal, you get the thorium, whatever it might be. So, oh, Donald, what are we going to do with you? Final story of the day, y'all. Sarah Palin 
is back in the national conversation in a very serious way. She spoke to Eric Bowling, who has a show. Is it on Newsmax? I think it's on Newsmax. And um, she was asked if she might run for office to fill Don Young's seat. He just passed away. Let's see what she says. We lost Don Young, the, the America lost Don Young, as a 49-year uh, representative, uh, House of Representatives from the state of Alaska. Now, last time you were here, you made some news, and I want to ask you, would you ever consider elected office again? And you said, yes, that may have been the first time we heard that in a long time. Let me ask you right here on this show, and we've been friends a very long time, um, are you ready to announce a, a run for that seat, that Don Young seat for House of Representatives from Alaska? Oh, my goodness, think of those huge shoes that are to be filled uh, when we consider Don Young's uh, longevity and uh, his passion, his love, his fighting spirit for our wonderful state of Alaska and for the nation as a whole. Um, if I were asked to serve in, in the House um, and take his place, I would be humbled and honored, and I would. Yeah, in a heartbeat, I would. Um, we'll, we'll see how this process is going to go um, in terms of filling that seat, but uh, it would be an honor. Well, I will tell you, folks, there it is. You heard it here first. Uh, Sarah Palin will be uh, a great, a great addition to the U.S. House of Representatives. I love Sarah, Governor, as a friend of yours for a very long time, I would love to see you in some of those uh, congressional hearings with the, with the last. I can't imagine what their, their heads would be spinning. I'd love to see that. Are you, you up for that challenge? Well, you know, when you have nothing to lose, kind of like President Trump, when he came into – in one sense, you have everything to lose, as, as Trump gave up so much. But on the other hand, you know, when the media has already clobbered you, as bad as you can get clobbered, and the haters, you're not going to change their mind. But you have faith that there are enough Americans who understand where you're coming from, your love for the country, your servant's heart. Um, uh, it, yeah, I, I think that there are enough Americans who understand what we need. And uh, when I have nothing to lose, this, this is the case today. I think it'd be good for my family, even. Um, yeah. All right. Oh, man. Now, what a lot of the younger viewers might not know is that Sarah Palin was viewed as, like, the precursor to Trump, like, kind of set the stage for somebody like Trump, because she was picked to be John McCain's VP in the race against Obama and Biden. And um, as soon as she got the national spotlight and started talking, everybody realized, oh, my goodness, she's really, really not bright. And um, she's, like, proudly anti-intellectual. She did a debate with Biden where Biden crushed her in a thousand ways. Um, she was a gas machine. Now, Biden is too, but Biden is in a different way. It's not like he's a gas machine because he's stupid. He's a gas machine because he says very politically incorrect things, to say the least, uh, or he did a lot. So Sarah Palin, and she was beloved by the base, whereas the majority of the country overwhelmingly rejected Sarah Palin. Um, Trump obviously was a little bit different. It is the case now that most of the country rejects him, but uh, he obviously was popular enough to win the presidency in the first place. But she sort of laid the groundwork for somebody like Trump to come in and, uh, and win. And now she's considering filling Don, Don Young's seat. Now, my favorite fact about Don Young is that he once very famously said that uh, people who, this was during the Iraq war, he basically said people who, he attributed a fake quote to Lincoln and said people who undermine the troops or question the troops during times of war are like treasonous and should be put to death. So Don Young, deeply anti-free speech, uh, and replaced by Sarah Palin, also deeply anti-free speech. 
How is Sarah Palin anti-free speech? Well, she just uh, waged a lawsuit and also appealed uh, against the New York Times, claiming like defamation or libel or slander or something like that. And uh, she lost. I think she lost twice. And I mean, this is you see this this contradiction all the time on the right, where they like to cloak themselves in the idea we believe in free speech. We're the we're the ones who are now on that side. The left abandoned it, but then they do things like sue the media and say, you're not allowed to say that because I don't like it. And look, even if whatever, I don't remember the specifics of the New York Times thing, but even if what the New York Times said wasn't true, you still can't really sue them and win. The bar is so high for a public figure to claim defamation because it not only needs to be not true, it needs to be like maliciously untrue, and there needs to be material harm. And that just obviously wasn't the case. So it's amazing to me. And again, bring back Trump. He was the same. He's the exact same. He claims to love free speech. He sued Bill Maher over a joke he didn't like. Bill Maher made a joke that the color of Trump's hair proves that his mom is the love child of her and an orangutan. And he, uh, Trump didn't like that joke. Maher said, like, you have to show your birth certificate to prove that, you know, your dad is not an orangutan. And Trump showed his birth certificate and was like, see? And then sued Bill Maher. And Bill Maher was like, the fuck is wrong with you? So free speech guy doesn't like a joke that makes him the butt of the joke. Sues him. You're not a free speech guy. You're not. He also said you should ban flag burning, et cetera, et cetera. You guys know the, all the stuff he did. But she's back, man. She's back. Now, to, to dissect what she's saying here, it seems to me like she's, she wants to run. But she's doing that thing where she says she's running without explicitly saying that she's running. So that's how you start to raise money and you can skirt a lot of uh, campaign finance laws. That's what it sounds like to me. But I don't know. You guys tell me if you agree with that. Because we've seen this a number of times. Like Trump said it on, the, on a podcast recently. He's like, you know, you're not allowed to say it for certain reasons. But uh, I think a lot of people are going to be very happy. So he basically confirmed he's running without flat out saying, I'm running. Um, and I think Sarah Palin is doing the same thing, again, to raise money with fewer restrictions and regulations. And so that's why she's like, I'm running, but I'm not going to explicitly say I'm running. That's what this strikes me as. Again, you guys tell me if I'm wrong. You guys tell me if I'm reading too much into it. Um, I'm like 78% sure that's where we're at with this. But there you have it. She's back, and uh, you're going to have – she's going to be right up there with Marjorie Taylor Greene, right up there with uh, Lauren Boebert. I mean, at the very least, we'll get some tremendous content. That I can promise you. All right, guys. We are done, baby. We are done. I love you all. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Um, we got great Chris Kyle and friends this week. We're talking to Amy Valella, phenomenal candidate, Medicare for All advocate. Definitely check that out. Um, and, yeah, subscribe on YouTube to Secular Talk and um, support the show on Patreon. And thank you to everybody who already does that. I really appreciate it. You guys are the best. You guys keep the show going. And, again, everybody have a great rest of your day. I will see you all later. Peace.